Hi Maharangi Vineyard family, Maz here, and um, it's great to be able to share God's with, word with you. Um, only sorry, probably like all of us, that it's not in person. I was so looking forward to uh, reconnecting in fellowship with the church family. And uh, like you, Pip and I heard the news that that wasn't going to be happening. Lockdown three, here we go. Well, it's my privilege to share God's word with you, and uh, it's fallen to me to kick us off in uh, chapter two of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And um, there's been some really tremendous challenges in the first few messages already. And um, I hope to build on that as we continue through this amazing letter. So I want us just to read together the first five verses of Philippians chapter two. And then in all simplicity, want to take a look at um, how we as believers should get on together and why that is so important in the eyes of Christ and the New Testament uh, in terms of our witness to the watching world. So excuse me while I put on my glasses to read. I'm getting to that stage of life. And so I want to read from Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 to 5. Let's follow along together. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Philippians is a tremendous letter, as we've already been seeing, and it's one that we've been reminded is full of Paul's overwhelming joy and gratitude and thankfulness for the Philippian church and all the tremendous qualities that they have. This is a church that Paul birthed, and you can read about that in Acts 16, and um, it had a dynamic birth to it. And Paul is, in that sense, uh, their spiritual dad, their spiritual father. And he's writing with an overwhelming sense of love for them while he remains imprisoned in a Roman cell chained to a guard. We're in lockdown, he was in lockup. And uh, yet in spite of that, there's this incredible joy that just bursts forth in this letter, the things that he's grateful for. And while that's a significant theme underlying the letter, there's also several other very important things that run through the letter, one of which is the importance of learning to stand firm in Christ, no matter what's being thrown at us in life. And another is this important theme of, as believers, learning to live and relate in unity and harmony and a sense of oneness, putting it plainly, getting on with each other so that the witness to the watching world is powerful and has an impact. Paul um, has already conveyed, in a sense, this concern in chapter one, and we read in verse 27 where he says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
then whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Then a little later in chapter 2 and uh, verse 14 through verse 16, Paul says these words, Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God. Without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. I know that's a few verses, but I want to set the context that there's this passion in Paul's heart that while he has affirmed so many good qualities about them, he's raising as their spiritual father this concern that is crept into the Philippian church that there are people who he says in chapter one are preaching the gospel uh, to create problems out of selfish ambition, bringing division. He has expressed this desire that he wants to see them standing as firm as one body of people proclaiming the gospel. And then these verses we've just read in chapter 2, verse 14, he's saying that believers, the Philippian believers and all believers, are meant to shine like stars in the universe as they hold out the word of life. But the impact of that is directly related to the harmony and the unity that is within the body of Christ. Jesus in John 17, and for sake of time, we won't turn there, but I encourage you to read uh, from around verse 19 and Jesus' prayer in John 17, where he has prayed for himself and his relationship to the Father. Then he's prayed for the, the disciples he leaves behind. And then he prays for all who would believe through the message of the gospel. And the heart cry in that latter prayer is that he constantly is saying, Father, I want them to be one as we are one, to com come to complete unity and be one so that the world will know you have sent me. Francis Schaeffer in his short but powerful little book, The Church Before the Watching World, said that in commands like this and John 13, 34, 35, where Jesus said, we're to love one another as he's loved us so the world will know we're his followers. He's saying, Jesus has given in these kind of commands and in this prayer in John 17, the watching world the right to sit in judgment upon the church as to whether or not we are truly followers of Christ and we are truly the body of Christ by the degree in which we demonstrate Christ's sacrificial love for one another and we live in unity and harmony together. And without those things, the dynamic and impact of us shining like stars in the universe, as Paul puts it, and holding forth the word of life is compromised. It's weakened. And while Jesus' desire for unity in Paul's teaching, as we'll quickly look at some of the very practical principles he gives, is important, we all know the reality, don't we, of life in community, whether it's in our own immediate family or whether it's in the church family, the body of Christ. When I became a Christian and found the church family, and then eventually went into pastoral ministry for some 30 years, 
I think I had this naive idea and idealistic vision that simply because we were all Christians, we were just going to get on with each other. And it was going to be one amazing ride. But didn't take long to learn quite the opposite. Within the dynamic of the body of Christ, the family of God, we have the beauty of incredible diversity. And when that is humming along and functioning in harmony and unity, it has the ability to just explode in amazing effectiveness for the cause of Christ. And when it's not, it has the ability to implode in tragic impact equally for the cause of Christ. So my journey as a pastor was spent a lot of time building unity and harmony and reconciliation between believers in marriages and families. Because if there's one thing the enemy of the kingdom of heaven wants to do, it's to divide and conquer. And so Paul gives us some very simple but profound tools about this whole principle of unity and harmony within the life of the church. And so the, what he does first in the first verse is to lay down four foundations. And he says, basically, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and the word if that he uses four times is not if as in it's questionable, the tense in the Greek language of the New Testament, basically it could be translated this way. It's a rhetorical question saying, because this is true, and this is right, because this is absolutely true, then these things should flow on from that. So he's saying, if, because you have encouragement by being united with Christ, then you should get on together. Because you belong to the same Lord, to the same Christ, united with him in the same body of Christ. And I don't know about you, but in becoming a Christian and being united with Christ, there welled up within me this desire that I'd never had, having come from a very fractured and broken family background, to just want to get on with others, to be in harmony, to love other people, and to want to get on so that our unity impacted our witness for the cause of Christ. And then he says, if you have any comfort from his love, and the idea of that comfort is the sense of also being strengthened, uh, being consoled. And the word comfort conveys the idea of somebody coming along to speak strength into another on the journey. And Paul's saying, if you're united with Christ, you're united with Christ because you've discovered the love of Christ. You've discovered how much you matter to God and how that has been revealed through the self-sacrificing life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying, when you've come to this revelation of love that Christ has for you, it should comfort your very soul. It should strengthen you and create a sense of resilience within you. And, and love, not only for Christ, but as we'll see in a moment, for the family of God. And he says, if you have any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. That word fellowship is that beautiful 
um, rich Greek word koinonia, which means, as Lyndon shared in the second message in the series, the whole idea of partnership. That word and its family of words in the New Testament, in all simplicity, convey the idea of sharing something in common together. And having come into that commonality, we're partners together in this thing. Fellowship was a rich word in ancient culture. And one of the most beautiful illustrations I've learned about it is that it was a word in ancient culture, koinonia, that was used to describe one village established around one fountain, one well, where everyone drank from the one well, from the one fountain. And it's the same too in, in certain countries and cultures today. When a village is established, it's established around a well where everybody comes to draw water from, to drink from. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, that at 12 and 13, that we've all been baptized into one Holy Spirit and given the one spirit to drink from. So Paul here again is saying, if your brothers and sisters united in Christ, you're encouraged by that. You've experienced his incredible love, his agape love, and come to the realization of what that means, and it comforts and it strengthens you. Then you've received the life of the Spirit of God. Then we should be, as it were, as the body of Christ, like one village gathered around one fountain, drinking deeply from life in the Spirit together as one village of people. That's what Paul's saying. And then he says in verse 2, then make my joy complete. And we'll go on to see how he suggests we do that. And in doing that, he gives us some of the very practical tools for unity. He's looking at this church family that he established through the eyes of the heart of a spiritual dad. He's celebrating many strengths they have um, that he applauds, he affirms. But he's saying, you know, while there's great, these things bring me great joy, my joy is not complete. It's not filled to the brim, which is the idea of this phrase. He said, I want you to make my joy complete. In other words, don't just fill the glass half full. I want it filled to the brim with a joy that goes beyond being grateful for the gifts you have and the expression of those. But even what brings me greater joy is to see you in harmony and unity together. Pip and I, as parents of four married children, um, and the world's greatest grandkids, I just had to slip that in, have celebrated over the years from the birth of our children through their journey into adulthood, their giftedness, their passions they pursue life with, um, their educations, the vocations and calling that each one of them is fulfilling. And we have always affirmed those and supported them and tried to empower them, uh, even uh, in their adulthood. But, you know, we've always said to each other, the thing that brings us the greatest joy about our children and moves me the most emotionally at times about them is watching the way they love each other. 
the way that they recognize they are family and that they're there for each other. They have each other's backs. They have had to work through conflict. We have had to as family. It's not been a perfect, harmonious journey all the way. But the thing that as parents brings us the greatest joy is just seeing the way they get on with each other. That they're not only siblings, they're closest of friends. And they would do anything and have demonstrated that for each other when they find one in need. That, to me, is the heart that Paul's conveying as a spiritual dad, that nothing brings him the greatest joy than seeing the church that he's given birth to functioning in harmony and unity. Because when the watching world, Jesus prayed, see how we love one another, how we care for one another. Then like in the book of Acts in the early chapters, chapter four and five, the watching world basically said, I want to belong to that. I want to be part of that. And so Paul is yearning for this to take place. And so he says to them in these verses that follow, make my joy complete by being Firstly, he says, like-minded. The idea of being like-minded is a key phrase in Philippians. It appears again in verse 5 and also in chapter 4, verse 2, a similar phrase. And the idea of that phrase is simply learning to think the same thing. We could put it very simply, being on the same page, reading from the same script together. And then he goes on to say, having the same love. And he uses again the same word agape. And the idea of this love that we've experienced from Christ, that we're then meant to have that same love with which we love one another. It's not a sentimental, emotional love. It's the highest form of love that the New Testament teaches. It is a love based on willful choice, regardless of the behavior of the one we're seeking to love, because we see beyond that into the value of the person in terms of who they are as someone created in the image of God. And when we can choose to see the value of someone, the gold within them, beyond the roughness of the exterior and the mistakes they make, and we make that choice to love them as Christ has chosen to love us, as Romans 5 says, that Christ demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. He never waited till we were better or good, because we never could be. It's while we were in our sinful state, he demonstrated that agape love by choosing to go to the cross and die for us. That's that kind of love that Paul's saying, have that same love that Christ has for you for one another. And you can get the sense that he's building this unity by saying, think the same thing, be on the same page, read from the same book, the same script, have the same love for one another, being one in spirit and purpose. 
within the body of Christ, there's incredible diversity. Um, just look around Sunday by Sunday. And this idea of being of the same spirit and purpose um, is almost a musical kind of phrase in that it's the idea that everybody's singing and playing in the same key. It's almost like the church is a choir, an orchestra of different voices and uh, different instruments, but under one conductor, we're all playing and singing from the same page, in the same key, in harmony. We're all in tune with one another because we have the same spirit and purpose in mind. And that is in all simplicity to live for the honor and the glory of God so that we are a credible witness before the watching world. And it's like, I'm a different instrument and voice to you and you to the others around you, but we're all within the same choir and orchestra, playing in key, singing in harmony, as Christ conducts our lives together as the body of Christ and the family of God. And the reality is where there's incredible, there is incredible beauty and diversity. Um, and you see that in nature. Um, I, I love where we live because of all the beautiful native trees and bush around us. I love the garden we've created that primarily Pip has created. Uh, I built the infrastructure for her, but she's the gifted green hands in the gardener. And I loved watching her as a florist, how she could get beautiful, diverse individual flowers and then bring them together that while they had a beauty in their individuality and diversity, when she created them together in a bouquet of flowers as a gift for someone or a wedding bouquet or a display in some place, their diversity together in a harmonious um, relationship created even something more beautiful, something uh, more harmonious than if they remained on their own. And this is the kind of vision that and picture Paul's painting for us. You know, it's, it's one thing to have individual colors of paint, but taking those colors and bringing them together in, in a harmonious art form creates something more beautiful than if those colors remained on their own in individual tubes of paint. And this is the kind of picture that Paul is painting that is the passion of his heart. So he says, for this to happen, for there to be the same kind of thinking, the same kind of love, the same kind of spirit and purpose, even with incredible diversity, we recognize we're never going to agree on every detail of everything in the church, the body of Christ. And this is where the maximum of that great Christian father, St. Augustine, comes in that if you have the time to read Romans chapter 14 through to verse 7 of chapter 15, you'll see the practical application of this. Augustine had this saying, in things essential, unity. In things non-essential, liberty. But in everything, love. 
And this is what the New Testament teaches and what Paul is emphasizing here and does so in those chapters I've referenced for you in Romans 14 on. We're saying the things that are essential to being a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ and the body of Christ, let's fight for those. Let's work hard for those to be united on them, to think the same thing. And you can only do that in community. And that's why it's so challenging. I can't think the same thing in isolation. I need to be in relationship with you, you with me, in conversation together, so that we come to unity on the things that are essential and the things that are non-essential and consequential to our salvation, to who God is, who Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is, the way of salvation. Those things that are inconsequential should not divide us. We should not fight over, because in everything, there should be the principle of love. And this is what Paul is trying to get across. So to be able to think the same thing, have the same love, and have the same spirit and purpose, Paul says we need to do the following. In humil do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And Paul is just inviting us into a journey of relating to one another, not out of selfish ambition, which simply means, selfish ambition and vain conceit simply mean, in a very practical way, they define and describe a person who is pursuing their own self-absorbed agenda with no regard to the impact upon others. It's the idea of I'm pursuing my gain and vain conceit is I'm pursuing my glory. And I have an overinflated opinion of myself. Whereas humility, and Paul teaches us in the early verses of Romans 12, is the ability to have a healthy self view that is not low self-esteem or putting myself down, but I have the right value about myself, but in the spirit of humility, I actually honor and value others above myself. I do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, I consider others better than myself. Each of you should not look, should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And sometimes we must understand that phrase. Paul is not saying, don't care for yourself. Don't be concerned about your issues and your needs in life. He's saying, but in doing so, do not be so self-absorbed that you don't also look out for the needs of others. Uh, how many of us as parents have tried to teach this to our children? We, and I watch this with my grandchildren that Children by nature are looking out for number one. They don't want to share the toys. They don't want to share Papa. They don't want to share the space. They are out for number one. And part of the whole parental training of children is to teach them to have a healthy self-view, but a humility that also teaches them to be equally concerned about the needs and others in the world around them to be a caring person, a loving person. And this is what Paul is saying simply to the Philippians. 
he's saying the sign of humble mindedness and maturity is that you are more concerned about others than you are about being absorbed with your own world. And then he gives us, as we come to a conclusion, the defining example, your attitude should be the same of that as that of Christ Jesus. And I think Lyndon's going to be picking up those verses that follow. But in those verses, Paul defines for us, he's saying, I've been instructing you now here in Jesus Christ is the ultimate illustration. I've exhorted you, now I'm setting before you the ultimate example. That Jesus, who being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. There was no selfish ambition in Christ, but he emptied himself, himself taking on our human likeness in the form of a slave, a servant, and being obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And Paul is saying, you want to see the ultimate example of someone who doesn't have selfish ambition, who is not vainly conceited and has a puffed up, over-exaggerated view of themselves. You want to see the ultimate example of humility? Then look no further than the person of Jesus Christ. Humility in ancient culture was not viewed as a sign of strength. It was viewed as a sign of absolute weakness. And no self-respecting person in ancient culture would describe themselves as humble. The Roman culture that the Philippians lived amongst was basically look out for number one. Cities vied to be the greatest city in the province and individuals fought with one another to wear the golden crown and the purple robe of virtually being in parliament. But in Christ, in the gospel of Christ, that virtue of humility became, as someone called it, the crowning social grace of Christianity, the bedrock of what it meant to be a Christian. And Jesus in Matthew 11 stated in the only self-descriptive verses in the gospels that he ever gave, that if we were burdened and overwhelmed, we should come and learn from him because he is meek and humble of heart. So how do we become humble of heart? How do we develop the mind of Christ? We constantly meditate upon the person of Jesus Christ. I have personally, and I say this with um, all my failings and in humility as best I know how, from the beginning of my Christian walk over 40 years ago, I have made it a constant goal to be always at some point meditating and studying and reflecting on one of the Gospels so that I can see the mind of Christ in action. You want to develop the mind of Christ? My most practical encouragement to you is constantly be in the Gospels of Christ where you see embodied the mind of Christ, outworked in his teaching and his relationship to all those around him. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. And I hope that you will be encouraged by being united with Christ and experiencing his love and drinking 
as one village around one fountain, the gift of the Holy Spirit, so that our lives will overflow with love for one another and practical care and concern for one another that I see exemplified wonderfully in the life of Maharangi Vinyar Church family, so that the watching world will say, I want in on that. I want to be a part of that. May God be glorified in our midst, and God bless you as you go about your week.